Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Book Report. I am Adam, joined, as always, with your master teacher, Caitlin. How's it going, Caitlin? It's going well. It is, especially Uh, here uh, in... uh, (laughs) That doesn't sound like a good... uh, That doesn't sound good. sounds like eh. Eh. No, actually, it's really good. I'm, I'm excited because here in L.A., we're actually having a gray rainy quote-unquote winter day so that's my jam we're right actually now. having some weather perfect mm-hmm. reading weather i might say perfect reading weather mm-hmm. uh so it is adam caitlin but we also have a special guest joining us today you may know her as the voice of one penelope laroche vanderhoot <laughs> or should i say zero it's the one and only kimmy What's up, Kimmy? Hi. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. This is fun. I'm already having yes. fun. We <laughs> are so glad you're joining us. And I think we've, it's always been open for you or Aaron to come join us, but we thought we needed to have you here. This is yeah, basically there, there were no ifs, Penelope's or book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is this, your this, book. Yeah. We needed to have you here for your arc and to hear all the, all the good details, but also... Uh, to get us going, I think I wanted to start with your two of your experiences with Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Uh, I believe you both have read it. I know Caitlin's read mm-hmm. it. Kimmy, have you read Oliver Twist? Not in its entirety, but I've read a lot of it. And I've seen a lot of iterations because you know your girl is a PBS masterpiece lover. So I'm very familiar with the story. (laughs) So you've seen adaptations and you've seen like iterations, read most of it. Were your moms not obsessed with Oliver the musical? Was were your moms not in love with the Artful Dodger when they were five? <laughs> I, I think only no. within the past couple oh, of years right. I realized that Oliver and Oliver Twist were kind of like uh, adaptations or the same things. I had no idea. I thought they were different things, and it was just a coincidence. That also, they had Oliver and Company. Mm-hmm. Oliver also, and Company. Mm-hmm. Now, see, I have seen Oliver and Company. Mm-hmm. I got Street Sawa Fair. So I know those I know those references more probably than the actual book itself. See, you're hey, ready. If, you're if ready for this. Yeah, I'm if ready. That's the okay. intro that you get. Then by all means, use Disney, use the stage, and but there's no Billy the Joel music in either the the novel or Oliver, correct? Sadly, no. so they're immediately sadly. inferior. Im- Im- immediately inferior. Immediately inferior. As soon as you take Billy Joel out of the equation. It, it, it is much less of a lasting impression on the mind. I mean, a lot less fun, <laughs> let me tell you. Well, well, so, okay, well, that's a good segue. Speaking of not as much fun, because I've heard a little bit of Caitlin's uh, opinions on this book. I guess in what you remember and have reading Oliver Twist, like, do you just enjoy the book? Like, is it a, is it a fun read? I'm going to guess maybe not. I'll answer and say, 
Yes and no. Uh, what a fun answer, right? Yes, in that Dickens. Okay. You got like Dickens, you got to get into, right? It's a different writing style. It's a different, it's not a different language. That feels like a silly thing to say, but you just have to like get into the groove of the time and the sort of writing. But the words he chooses are silly. The names are silly. All these names are so silly. And that's a really fun time. Plus, you just see things that pop up in like, if you're a Harry Potter fan, like so many of these names she pulled, like even his, um, this isn't in Oliver Twist, but his artist who did a lot of the really beautiful original mm-hmm. drawings when it was being published was named George Crookshank. And we all know Crookshanks as oh, really? Hermione's lovely cat. Yeah, we got yep. the Beatle. Like, so it's really fun to read and see the references to like later literature and the characters are very ridiculous and silly. But is it fun watching a sweet, innocent child be beaten and, and hated on regularly for no reason? No, that's not a fun time. It's pretty painful. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like a, a rough read. How about how about you, Kate? Uh, when you were, I know you've read it before, but rereading yeah. it in preparation for this is like, what are your general thoughts on the book as a whole? Well, I first I first read it in ninth grade. Uh, it was required reading for uh, that class, and definitely had a different experience at that time. Not only was it forced upon me, uh, but also just as how old would I be in ninth grade? Like a 14 or 15 year old looking at these plights of, of the orphans and those that are called juvenile delinquents. I, I, I wasn't fully <laughs> empathetic towards it. Uh, and so it was just more of a reading the spark notes and reading to get the points for the assignments. And it wasn't until coming back to it in its entirety for this arc, um, because Kimmy had told me when she was designing Penny that she was uh, basing her past in part on Oliver Twist, that I read with a different purpose and read more towards the characters. And yeah, it immediately becomes apparent morality is definitely more painted black and white in this for a reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And the character names, yeah, it was just another book, much like I said in Moby Dick, where it's just like, I don't have to come up with interesting, funny or weird NPC names. They are there. They are ready to go for you. And a lot of times he would name his characters in such a caricature type way because he's telling us straight up what their character flaws are or um, for the heroes of the story, what their strengths are as well. We have, okay, we have, we have Twist, we have Fagin, Dodger, Brittles. Mm-hmm. Who are the two... Oh, spoiler. This is my, I forgot to say, guys, if you're a weirdo <laughs> and you haven't finished our arc of Oliver Twist, stop what you're doing right now because there will be spoilies. There absolutely will be spoilies. Oh, so yes. pause right now. Go back. And now I've given you enough time for me to ask, who are the two ghouls or that Fagin raises in the final fight? What were their names? They had goofy names, too. Oh, if gosh. You remember. One of them was... Brownlow, I'm pretty sure, which, which is oh. an, uh, uh, not actually one of the characters that is a bad guy in it. Um, he's actually one of the good guys in it because mm-hmm. I wanted to, like, I don't know. I was like, hey, who would, who would get sucked in here? Um, so Brownlow's actually in the story. He is somebody who helps rescue um, Oliver from his plight. He's like an old. So this man. is how you repay him. His good character. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So those who would know the story, they're like, no, not Brownlow. Uh, and I forget the other one. Shoot, don't have. I that can in read my notes. It was like a quick one. I can read some of my favorite names. I've got a list of the names from. Okay, all the twists please, right here. please. Oh, yeah. we've got Mr. and Mrs. Sourberry. 
Oh, yeah. Noah, Sourberry. Sourberry. We got Noah Claypole. Okay. We've got Mr. Grimwig. Um, we have, obviously, one of my favorites, Kate Hughes, Brittles, Mr. Brittles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two policemen who are really incompetent, Duff and Blathers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, their names right there tell you their incompetence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What and then the Tom the, Chitling. The Chitling. Yeah. These are, yeah. So many good. Yeah. Not a, not a shortage of fun names to use for characters. What's, what's the name of um, our, our rabbit folk from the tea shop? The Rose. Rose, Rose Maley. Uh, who in the book is the basically she is one of the ones that uh, Oliver ends up living with mm-hmm. and is uh, well closer to him than he might have realized. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I can yeah. see how you'd want to cling to the fun of the names because from just going off of this world that you created, Kate, it is pretty like a dark and kind of feels kind of hopeless town and city with these children who are eking to survive but also have an abusive caretaker so yeah it's pretty which is basically charles charles dickens you know take on oliver twist that's the tone that he was putting uh so it was you know kind of before now in a lot of our arcs and a lot of our stories we kind of kept morality or the question of right and wrong in more of a gray area and in this one, to match the tone of the book, but also to match like, hey, I want to make it very clear. Fagin's a bad guy. He's not right. misunderstood. He has, he's clearly unrepentant and knowing what he's doing. Uh, so it, it, I had to kind of stay with that chivalrous tone that Charles Dickens takes on a look at the societal evils, especially those that affected children, children on the streets. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, for the tone that you just heard in this past arc um where <laughs> it is a bit of a beat down uh is exactly the same thing that you'll find in the novel yeah you you didn't mince words you did not every bad guy like you said can be like a misguided kind of foolish guy who, who like who writes their wrongs and has like a heart of gold underneath you just went straight out evil with this guy when you introduced like his torture dungeon and uh yeah trying just trying to kill people yeah he was just a bad guy through and through yeah and he's which like was fun taking sure a monopoly on like fresh water in the city and just like eking out any kind of a chance at rising out of the ranks from anybody who lives in this area and being the the chief warden of <laughs> mayhem here yeah, yeah there, there's there's no question about it well, I want to get back more to the podcast later. I guess first, let's back up a bit. And as our resident high school English teacher, could you please give us all a little bit of the history background just on the novel as a whole? It's, it's sure. impact in history and Charles Dickens or anything else you think yeah, that would be interesting yeah. to share. Sure. Yeah, I'll give you kind of just the main gist of it. Uh, the full name of this novel is Oliver Twist or The Parish Boy's Progress. And so even in the title of this, Dickens wanted to have a bit of a, an allusion to another way earlier work, The Pilgrim's Progress. And so there is already a stance on morality at the very beginning, and also telling us right away that our title character is going to be undergoing not just physical suffering, but also all, just extreme suffering to the point where it becomes almost spiritual. I, I've um, heard but, of Pilgrim's Progress. What, what, mm-hmm. what is that novel about, really quick? Do you, do you know? 
Pilgrim's Progress is like an allegory where it follows the the Christian's walk of life, like from choosing to uh, convert to Christianity or choosing to follow Christ and then making it all the way to the gates of heaven. But it, every single bit of it is allegorical, so it's not to be taken anything other than symbolic and metaphorical for what your main character, uh, your Christian, basically. Gotcha. I think he's literally named Christian. Christian. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> like what he goes through, it's it's like a lot of biblical allusions, a lot of references, and so it's it's just what you undergo through in your walk, um, making it to the end of your life, and then entering into heaven. So, you know, just the temptations, the suffering, the different paths you can choose. And so it, it's, there are a lot of in here, there are a lot of temptations for Oliver. There are, there's a lot of suffering. Um, and in the end, though, he does come to a better end. And he does come to gotcha. a better life, like a, an alternate second life, <laughs> as it were. Gotcha. Um, but this is only a second novel. Like it, it's pretty interesting because you know he Dickens got his start as um, a writer for newspapers, really as a reporter, as a journalist, and so he takes that journalistic view of hey, let me find the details, let me find the facts, and expose it and open it up. But here he's putting it into a novel form where we're following a story. So you see that in here, and it's this is yeah, this is old. This is from 1838. So once again, one of those stories that we're able to use <laughs> because it's open and old enough for us to use. Um, but yeah, it's, it is fascinating to see. This is his only his second novel he ever got published. And was the first a Christmas story? I don't know what the first first was. one was Pickwick Papers. Oh, OK. He did yeah. all these in like serialized too. These were all released in like literary magazines in chunks. Mm-hmm. So everyone would be like waiting for the next one to come out in like whatever exactly. time it was. And in the 1800s, that's how you did it. Rarely would they actually publish novels all together in one. The Gothics were really the first ones to be doing that in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. But because of this, it, I think it allowed him to make what is now known as the, the earliest example of uh, a social novel, like a social justice novel, um, where it's meant to draw the reader's attention to societal evils. Specifically in Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist, we're looking at child labor, we're looking at recruitment of children as criminals. We're looking at like the presence of street children and how even orphans and the poor are treated on a societal level. And to what extent are we as citizens responsible for their well-being? Kind of sounds familiar to what people talk about today, even mm-hmm. now. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Anything you want to add, Kimmy? Yeah. This is something I found really interesting in researching things is that apparently like workhouses and whatnot have existed for like years and years and years in English society by this point. But in 1834, the rich and middle class were like, there was so much growth in this, in the country and particularly in London of people. And a lot of them were ending up in poverty. They were really frustrated and felt like the system wasn't working. And so what was decided to be the best option was to double down on work, uh, like workhouse culture and to be like, "Mm, it hasn't worked thus far. We're going to do it more and make it worse to really discourage Mm -hmm. people from being poor. And that happened in 1834. This is written in 1837. Dickens had spent time himself in a workhouse as a child, helping to pay off his father's uh, debts while his father was in prison. And he was really moved by this and really frustrated by what he was seeing. And so that is one of the things that really inspired this, this novel. Mm hmm. So yeah, he had he had an agenda. <laughs> he had a, a purpose in looking at this. Now, kind of a very 
simplistic overview of the summary, just if you want to like see right away, which is a great like segue into also talking about Penny. Um, but in this Oliver Twist, he is born, you know, motherless, parentless, uh, without apparent blood relatives, and so immediately put into the workhouses. And after he leaves from that, he's taken care of by a gang of London thieves, um, but he still refuses to participate in their thievery. He's kind of just right on the outside of the, she's just on the periphery of their activities. And Dickens makes sure to continuously show him as pure of heart, um, even despite his surroundings, despite his upbringing, despite how people treat him like shit. Um, he continuously makes innocent decision after innocent decision. And so finally, an upper class family takes him in. But the thieves and um, this one weird guy, monks, <laughs> um, he's continuously pursued by them, seen as an in like, oh, he's in with this rich family. We can steal from them. We can use this connection to our advantage. And so nobody knows about whose parents are until we find out that this very same upper class family that takes him in. Um, they see a portrait that looks like him. There's a locket, which I'll bring up later on, um, that was stolen from his mother when he was born. Um, and a bunch of other things happen where he realizes, oh, this, this is my distant family. These are my relatives. I was actually belonging to a family the whole time. So it, it, it is one of those where you have a circle of luck or fate you know the the classic wheel of fate where you start at the top and then you make your way to the bottom and make it way all the way back up again can you give me some context as like dickens at this time as a writer was he appreciated in his time was he kind of like a no name did people like love this novel immediately when it came out Like Kimmy pointed out, because it was serialized, it continued to make money. So the fact that it was continuously published um, in the periodical that he worked for and that it was requested over and over again shows us that there was a want for this story and stories like this. But as for he wasn't famous, he wasn't... uh, super rich he wasn't you know kind of a a rock star of a writer like we'll talk in our in a couple novels from now when we get to the great gatsby but he he was successful enough to keep the stories coming so he yeah it it was more one of those he didn't have a lot of respect but he was paid to keep doing what he loved and i think that's mostly because he he made it very clear, like what I'm writing is going to be social justice oriented mm-hmm. and it's going to be pointing out some ugly parts of London society and then society as a whole, even in other urbane parts of the world. And I don't want to back down from that. And so he is yet a, a writer I respect for that, a writer that I respect that he, he stuck to his moral ground. And he was lucky that he kept getting paid to do it. And I think what helped him was the serialized component of it. Whereas instead of one big tome that we see, that we read in classrooms, instead it was chapter by chapter. Right. And I think that was short enough for people to take in. (laughs) Uh Right. Um, Plus you were paid for the word back then. Sorry, Kate. Yeah, exactly. Gosh, can you imagine if that was still the case? 
So, <laughs> so yeah, he is. Uh, I, I think you could say he was successful, but he wasn't famous. I'd love to offer too. Like Queen Victoria loved his writings. Like Queen Victoria mm-hmm. read all of Oliver Twist. Um, there's like quotes about her trying to talk to her because this is like early. Like this is like young, cool Queen Victoria. Um, like either pre-Albert, I think, where mm-hmm. she was reading it and really loving it. And Lord Melbourne, her Prime Minister, was like, "I don't like it. I don't like seeing the poor in real life, and I don't like reading about them." Yeah. <laughs> Just such a sad thing, but also a little funny. Anyway, so like he definitely had fans in high places. Yeah. You, oh, that's interesting because I was going to ask you, you. We keep talking about how he was writing with an agenda and was trying to shine a light on something that maybe the wealthy didn't want to look at or pretend wasn't there mm-hmm. or just blame them for their own circumstances they found themselves in. Mm-hmm. After this novel came out and if it was popular, was there any change? Did anything change because of this book? Was anything shifted or a light shined on and these practices were put away with or, or, or not? Was it all in vain kind of? It wasn't all in vain. It, 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 it wasn't right away. It, it was one of those where it would take many, many more years to see this breakdown of the, I guess, the leaning on the workhouses. And I, if I'm correct with the dates, Dickens was able to see the improvement in his lifetime. But it wouldn't be until closer to World War II that we actually see a lot of these infrastructural changes with regards to welfare start to occur. Um, So we're talking about almost a hundred years difference, but um, you start to see a lot of these workhouses uh, being shut down and a lot of private organizations popping up because of individuals reading this um, and other stories like it to instead have charitable organizations that were meant to um, not just give money and not just to provide basic necessities, but also to educate um, so that they would at least, people born into poverty would at least have the opportunity to rise from their stations. But it takes a while. When was this novel written? Was it late 1800s? It was written 1837, published 1838. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Kind of mid, early 1800s. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, pre uh, for Victoria, <laughs> Queen Victoria, uh, pre depression, <laughs> pre before she pre got all uh, black. sucked into her. <laughs> yeah, pre, gotcha, gotcha. Pre what we typically think of as the Victorian era. This when she was like the cool young queen that everyone was on. I don't know for all my like Victoria heads out there who watch it on PBS. It's like when she's like <laughs> cool and young and like flirting with all the dignitaries. Hmm. And wanting to make a change, but they're like, no, the crown. <laughs> She's like, exactly. Screw the crown. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I appreciate everything you said about his agenda and what he was trying to do. I think what I always try and get to at this point after the history is to say, as I think a lot of maybe students, as they're assigned this book, or when you see it, that it's, it's stood the test of time, why this book? Mm-hmm. Why? What makes it so special? What's what's so great about it? I guess to be to be to be short about it. <laughs> Why should I read it? I mean, I, isn't that yeah. the kind of question a lot of like probably your students have, Kate? But mm-hmm. a lot of people where it's like this. Oh, totally. Why this book? Why why of all the other books? Why am I assigned this one? Why is this a classic? Well, any good teacher should be able to show their their students like why why are we reading this other than it's yeah. on the curriculum. So I I 
think that's a very valid question for anybody to ask. Um, I, I really am heartened by the interest and heart that a lot of my students right now show for social justice. Um, a lot of attention is being paid to, it's like, I mean, it's, it's been there and I see that, but it, it, I think especially with Gen Z right now, there, there is this genuine interest in, I want the world to be better. I admit it is shitty and I uh, can't rest in that. And in, in fact, part of my identity needs to be based on what social justice movement or movements am I a part of? Um, and there's a lot of pressure with that. And I think just seeing this novel, it's one of the first novels, it's one of the first stories that is identified as a social justice novel, is identified by both the author and then later on critics of this genre that it is meant to be read as a criticism about the society in which the author lived, for in, in this case for Charles Dickens, um, and specifically what Kimmy was talking about, the poor laws. And we have very similar concerns today. We have concerns about welfare. We have concerns about socioeconomic status, you know, disparity. We have concerns about the relation between things you have no control over and the position in society in which you're placed and to what extent are individuals responsible for others' well-being as well as to what extent should the government be responsible for that. And so it's cool to see a historical... I guess, parameter for that, to, to see an early work that attempts to attack this, as opposed to thinking, well, this is something new. Nobody's ever tried to do anything before. I feel like the weight of the world is on my shoulders, and I don't know where to begin. And so just, you know, those poor laws that he's talking about, and Kimmy, you, you, you hit it on the nail, right? That they were thinking, hey, let's, uh, let's have poverty relief by just entirely depending on the workhouses so that we can distinguish between those who are poor and are willing to labor, and so they're worthy of being helped, and those who just don't make it in the workhouse or refuse to go in the workhouse, they must be lazy and therefore undeserving of any help. And so... It's, it's showing that this, this is a false dichotomy. It's a false, you know, two ways of looking at people. And I think it's wonderful to have an author who is attempting to inspire his readers, especially readers at the time of upper and middle classes, to improve intolerable conditions. And he himself knew it very well. Like you said, Kimmy, he himself had been in the workhouses uh, more sp when he was 12. Um, his dad's in debtor's prison. And that's how the workhouses uh, functioned. They had other members of the family. Doesn't matter how old they were. They had to work off that person's debt while they stayed in prison. And so this is an experience that haunted him even through adulthood. And it inspired his efforts toward labor condition reforms. And writing this novel is one of those efforts. So if you are interested in labor reforms specifically or just social justice in general, this is a great way to look at how to expose working conditions or expose societal reforms that need to happen. So it sounds like uh, there was nothing particularly revolutionary in maybe the language that he wrote in, even though I'm sure it was beautiful. It sounds like what made it stand the test of time was that it was maybe one of the first popular novels that used the medium as an effort to like strike change 
in the world to call out injustices in uh, in in society and so that so to you that, that's what you think made made it stand the, test, stand the test of time was the agenda that it had and that it pushed that's what you think? I, I would say like for me that that, that would be my argument okay. it, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. it's not like the poetry that, that he uses sense. or the form of function mm-hmm. i mean I, I love it that like some of the most important characters in this novel are identified as i mentioned earlier like they're prostitutes they're orphans they're juvenile delinquents they were people who were seen at the lowest fringes of society and here they are put front and center and made fully fleshed and full dimensional Whereas many of the others are kind of just made two-dimensional and made fun of and, and put in as caricatures. So you are forced to really pay attention to people who have come from level of society that most of the readers, middle and upper class, would have paid no attention to. And so it humanizes those that are typically written off. Um, I have this like quote from Dickens that he put into an interview um, within five years of publishing this. And he says, I have great faith in the poor. To the best of my ability, I always endeavor to present them in a favorable light to the rich. And I shall never cease, I hope, until I die, to advocate their being made as happy and as wise as the circumstances of their condition and its utmost improvement will admit of their becoming. So he's like, that. I mean, that's his mission statement right there. He's like, I, my goal is for those who want nothing to do with people who are experiencing poor living conditions to see them as human. And I will focus my, my efforts on this. I mean, he knew that the interference of others was key to affecting change. And that's the challenge he presents to his readers in this book and many other books he writes. And it's super relevant now for readers in 2022. I think it's a great reminder that you don't have to just also be in social work to make like a a social change a lot of it can be like use your medium use where you are and what you do to strike a change and so i could see how if this novel stood the test of time it's because he helps show that you can use your art form whatever it is to Mm -hmm. strike change whether Mm -hmm. it's literature or music or film or anything else any kind of walk of life so no i think that's Mm -hmm. i think that's great and that's a great it's a great answer that idea now, was happening. Never mind. Pass no, 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 go. No, please, please. No, I was gonna say that idea of what you just said was really happening at this time too. Like some years, not too many years later, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? And people have mm-hmm. conflicting feelings about that. But Queen Victoria read that, and that's why England did not come and support the South to their detriment. They got all their cotton for all of their Industrial Revolution mills from the South. But Queen Victoria read Uncle Tom's Cabin and was like. Nah, I, this isn't our fight. They got to, I want to support the North, at least from afar, so slavery can be ended. She was convicted by this novel. So this idea that Dickens is doing, it's like really, it's growing in its use and it's growing in this. It's becoming like a more normal thing for people to use writing to make a difference. That's yeah. really cool. Uh, that perspective is really cool. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, and then we see it still now. So for, for people in 2022, telling stories is what so many different types of jobs allow you to do. Be it if you're a journalist, be it if you are a teacher in a classroom presenting a work, be it if you are an author or a screenwriter, a director, even a, shall I say, podcaster. You know, we, we tell stories and the stories relate these themes and highlight people who otherwise might have no voice and that could have lasting change all right you've sold me on it 
You've sold me on it. This book needs <laughs> to be in schools. Yes, Kimmy. <laughs> I'll offer one more thing, which is I yeah. fully agree with Kate. The reason this stands the test of time is because of what he was doing. The prose is dope, though. Like, no one, he's so funny. Some So often I read a sentence by Dickens. I'm like, what's well, the best sentence I've ever read? Um, his prose is fabulous. Like, it is worth <laughs> reading his sentences. They're so good. They're, it's like Italian food. Mm-hmm. He's, mm, it's so good. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Now let's shift away from the book towards our podcast. Uh, oh, oh! before I do, because I'm sure people were yelling at me earlier, I said A Christmas Story. That's the Lampleg movie. This is a Christmas. That was a Christmas Carol that he wrote. So stop yelling at me and don't send me emails that I got it wrong. Okay. Christmas Carol. <laughs> we knew what Charles you were Dickens. saying. We oh, knew. but the listeners out there, I don't know. I they know, probably think I'm that stupid. And some of them might be right. Okay. Uh, so... I want to get to the the nice connection between the novel, where the novel and our podcast meet. This is where I love to toss out to Caitlin and maybe Kimmy. Maybe you caught some while we were playing too that stand out to you. What were some of like uh, some of the Easter eggs, some of the references that you pulled from the book and dropped into uh, into our podcast? Obviously, there's the characters, but maybe some mm-hmm. subtle things that you know me or someone who hasn't read the book wouldn't catch. Oh my gosh! I mean, designing, it, designing the the city. Uh, really, I I wanted it to reflect the city of London. Of course, we couldn't really call it London. Um, and the episode where we do a mini world building or a city building. Yeah, that was super uh, fun. A session mm-hmm. was super fun with you guys, and there are references even in some of your own building that you did um i think it the so when you guys emerge from the the carapace of like the dungeons uh, belonging to fagan you know you come below the statue of rufus but there there is there is a, a dog in in the novel um that is memorialized and uh i don't it, so it's good that you gave it the name rufus i don't have a name for it but it just belongs to a character that I chose not to put into the story. Bill Sykes. Um, he is basically Fagin's uh, lieutenant hmm. um, and just as horrible as him. But I wanted the the antagonistic focus to just be on Fagin. So I took out Bill Sykes, who has a lovely end, um, also brought on by that dog. And uh, so the the characters that are associated with Bill Sykes, I kind of took out as well. Um, I, there's that reference. They're they're also in a pivotal moment for Penny. Um, at the very end, after you have defeated Fagin, uh, Penny finds a locket. Um, and I I made I I designed the locket a little bit different, but it's a it's a simple golden locket in the novel and that was belonging to Oliver Twist's mom that had been taken from her when he was born and so the flashback that she gets uh from you know when she touches this locket is the exact same scene that happens in the novel with Oliver Twist's birth and so I just took that scene and like have it as an implanted weird memory um, very cool yeah that was a cool moment yeah, so the it just it's not meant to solve a mystery. It's meant to just like give further background and fleshing out of a of a different life uh, that Penny could pursue or have, mm-hmm. and and what was taken from her as well. 
And then, of course, in, in very Pulp Fiction status, Fagin throughout the novel has this collection of jewels and just goods that the kids steal and give to him. And he keeps the best of them in this little chest. And like it <laughs> describes it a couple times. And I kept thinking of Pulp Fiction where he would open it up and like stare at it and it shines on his face. And uh-huh. we never see inside because as soon as any of the kids get close to him, he like snaps it shut and hides it. And so uh, I just kind of thought, hey, just lets your mind kind of lets the mind kind of just kind of wonder about all like the riches that are in there. Yeah, exactly. So I just made that the the chest at the end. Uh, Kimmy, do you from when you read it or even the iterations you've seen of it, when was there anything fun that you were you were happy to see pop up in the podcast? You're like, oh, and from the world, you're like, oh, this character or this place or this reference. Um, I love the usage of old smoke, which is something Kate and I discussed, which just like those names for London that are so fun, but people don't usually know. Um, So I really enjoyed things Mm -hmm. like that. For me, it was using clever ways to use the names like brittles. Um, And if I remember correctly, when we first appear in the world, we appear in an undertake. We appear in the dungeon of an undertaker's mortuary. Mortuary. Exactly. And that's a big scene at the beginning of Oliver Twist. So I think that was really fun. That's a really big scene. I think that's the second or third place Oliver is taken and he gets pretty abused yeah. there um, before he yep. runs away to Fagin's gang. Um, but there's a lot of scenes in that dungeon. Um, sad scenes, but a lot of scenes at the beginning. And it was fun that that's where we showed up. So that was another little Easter egg Kate did that I thought was really smart. I was, I was, you, you recognized it. So I was happy at least. It's always fun as the <laughs> DM too, where you see like certain things light up in your, your players' faces like... I think I got this. So <laughs> it was it was really fun just as a player. It was really fun doing. We had, I think we had two bottle episodes uh, in this in this mm-hmm. arc. I think in that mortuary we were inside that tiny mortuary for the entire episode. Yep. And then later at the graveyard, I think after we find <laughs> out who Penelope is or who it, Penelope isn't. I think that entire episode was just standing next to a grave for, for an hour and. Yeah, it was it was a fun world to be in. I think Kate, you helped craft with along with Dickens taking from it a really fun world to, uh, to play in. That yeah, yeah, and so you guys chose just, yeah. to go to some fun places too. Um, but it was it, as a DM, it's fun to world build with your players. And so that session where you were you know kind of helping me build out Old Smoke and figure out the Dickens versus Charlestown. You know Charles Dickens. I guess I, mm. I think you guys got that, uh, dear listeners. But also the in the graveyard when you guys are finally leaving and you overhear the soliloquy of uh, basically from the oh, other famous words. Yeah, uh, the the oh my gosh, I almost said Christmas story. Now look what you did. But for, yeah, I'm that sorry. soliloquy at the end uh, by Scrooge in a Christmas Carol, and so it's just a Dickens reference, a fun little one if you ever realize it. Um, See, so, I can yeah, make it, the, it is, the name on this headstone go away. <laughs> I fun. promise to keep Christmas in my heart all the year. <laughs> and then yeah. Penelope's little last kind of uh, stinger at the end, saying that like everyone hates that guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, thought, I thought we just end that episode. It was really yeah. Good. <laughs> so um, yeah, okay. a, a lot of it is just it's the characters, it's the it's little scenes and little phrases here and there that plants yeah. in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it always helps kind of. Just kind of bring the world to life a little bit with uh, with the author's own words sometimes. Mm-hmm. So now I want to segue to our last section. This is normally kind of when we do a Q and A for Caitlin as a DM or me as a player. 
But I have written these questions, and these questions are all for Kimmy, since Kimmy is here. All about Penny. I want to know all. I want to hear how Kimmy's experience was, and 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 her, her character Penelope. And Caitlin, feel free to chime in if anything kind of comes into your mind as as she's answering this. But I want to start off by saying that so we all know that when we launch this podcast, you were going to be uh, our surrogate for the audience of people who haven't played before. You were our resident newbie who still never played often D&D confused. Before. Still, still often confused. <laughs> wrong. I was playing a different D game the other day, and I was like, "What's my attack bonus?" So still don't know what I'm doing. I think you still think you're new to D&D, but you've been playing for about a year and a half now. But Oh, my gosh. I still feel new. It's all relative. <laughs> oh, you still feel new. Only, only 40 hours in of playing. Yeah. Uh, so my first question is, what's been the hardest part about learning Dungeons & Dragons for you? Keeping track of every single number. There's so many numbers. There's so many numbers. And I'm not a math person. So, so I'm like, much, wait, it's my so attack bo- bonus versus my proficiency versus um, there's just a lot of like, what do I add to this role? Um, constantly. I think there's been a couple times where I've asked it and I've, I add him very kindly answers and I can just see the pain where he's like, we've been doing this. And I'm just no, like, no, I don't know my attack. Sure. No, you're you're kind about it. You never make me feel bad. But I'm just like, I should know this. But I'm very confused by all the numbers of it. Um, which is why I like being a rogue is it's just real simple. I'm not chasing spells. I don't do much, but when I do, it's usually just hitting. And I like that. <laughs> well, and, and, and every time you level up, it changes like half your numbers. And they, you have to remember like, what did I put my proficiency in? And mm-hmm. that number changes. And then this change. So that, that connects to that number. Yeah. It's a lot of, a lot of numbers to keep up with, which so makes many it numbers. kind of tedious at times. Mm-mm. Uh, what was your inspiration in designing and developing Penelope or Zero? What a good question. I'm trying to think exactly. First of all, I was nervous and I was just like, I got to give her so much backstory. And I maybe overdid right. it. I had like three different no. back, like aspects of her backstory, but like whatever. I just was like, <laughs> I got to develop this. So I really, really gave her a lot of backstory. I... I listened to the podcast Lore. It's very good. Aaron Mankey, we love you. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, there had been an episode about changelings that stuck in my brain. Uh, like the historical like Irish concept of changelings, right? Which is that if you had a kid that was weird, you could be like, oh, this is just the changeling. My real baby was in the bed. And then the changeling swapped out their baby for them mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. stole my real baby. It's really fey. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I, I, I can't imagine it was ever taken super seriously, but it's just like a cultural, interesting little thing. And I saw Changeling was an option. I'm like, oh, that's fun. And I was like, wouldn't that be cool if it was the reverse story where she was stolen from her family for nefarious uses uh, uses, um, versus the opposite narrative we're often given. So I think I started there. I've also been influenced by a ton of Disney movies where everything always happens to orphans and orphans have more fun. So <laughs> also have more clearly trauma and pain. But um, so I just figured we were going through different options of like background stories. And it just made sense if she was stolen to have her be an urchin or be an orphan and kind of be wandering and getting into trouble. Also, it just seems much more fun to play like naughty characters, not bad characters, but like naughty where, you know, totally. you just get in trouble and you don't do the thing you're supposed to. I love I love the Artful Dodger. The Artful Dodger is like one of the he's like a Tom Sawyer, like Tom Sawyer characters are my favorite characters. <laughs> I was a tutor. Those are my favorite kids to tutor. I love a kid that gets into a little bit of trouble with like a wink, you know, so that kind of inspired me to they sort have of build up and charisma. Penny. 
Yeah, I just like someone who's like, the rules aren't for me, but they're not mean. They're not cruel. They're just like, mm, those are for other people. So the, the, I always want to be that and I'm, I'm too afraid. So that's kind of all <laughs> the different things that built into Penny. And knowing this was literary and knowing that kind of what Kate was thinking, I'm like, well, she's going to be an orphan. She might as well be an Oliver Twist orphan. You know what I mean? Like, you just go mm-hmm. to the best. So that's so was that before we even started there. playing? Before we even started playing, did you make that kind of connection? One, two, so I, was it an was it an urchin first, and all these things that seem to parallel with that? And you're like, hey, we're doing a literary world. I guess you could connect with that world. Like you, you started with the character before you got to the novel. Generally, I, it kind of all happened at once. To be honest, I was like, oh, urchin. Well, like that makes sense. Like we're probably going to do Charles Dickens at some point. So mm-hmm. I think it all just kind of evolved at the same time. But I, I told Kate before we played, like I think this is. I think she probably, if you wanted to, could come from Oliver Twist, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So this was from the beginning. Yeah, I had asked, I had asked each of the players, you know, if, if you were to choose a literary background for your character or a series of stories or even an author or a genre that you'd like to base them on, which one would you choose? And so you, yeah, you told that even before we started Session Zero uh, that you were interested in Oliver Twist as your literary background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. it worked really well. I can give an Easter egg unless I don't actually never mind. I'm not gonna give this. Never mind. <gasps> Tantalizing. Jeez, it's because audience. I don't remember if it made into a long term, but how like the name ended up wrong that I accidentally told you guys the wrong name for her that oh. I meant it to be Zed. <laughs> I can't remember if that made it into an episode actually, but like the name she was supposed to be Zed. I wrote down Zed everywhere, but I told Kate Zero. Like I have proof that I told her zero. You wrote down the like, British Oops. and then you told me the American. Yeah, no, it was dumb. It's like really dumb. I did it to myself because I was like, I can't be zero. That's in the book holes. Um, so <laughs> that's the she was originally. You know what? Zero works. Zed. It it works so much though. I mean, Zed could have been cool too, but hey, now I'm so used to zero, so I can't imagine it not being zero. Yeah, I just was really influenced by holes in my early years. I guess. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> uh, and I think all the work you did beforehand. Like maybe I guess if you don't know any different, you chose to go like heavy in your background. And I think that was the right decision to make because you saw and the audience has, has seen or heard that pay off in so many ways. Like that's why it was so uh, meaty, I guess, for lack of a word in this arc. There was so much to play with and a lot of character moments. And I think it's really uh, playing a changeling I, you, I like how you leaned into what could be a really interesting dynamic is that it's inherently kind of some dramatic irony of uh, playing with identity and who they actually are and that was a lot of fun to play with and hint at for a while with the with the fuchsia hands and what that means and when will they know and what do I recognize and and then finally coming out and it it was just a really good um reveal in at the grave and at that tombstone and seeing who she actually was and so i would just say kudos to actually putting the work in because i think that you've seen that when you do that you have so much more to play with and your character is so much more rich Mm -hmm. Um, and you and you made my job easier too because you gave me plenty to work with as well Okay, good. I'm glad you saw it as helpful and not controlling, which is sometimes no, no. My my job as the DM is to write a story with you guys, not for you guys, and so Mm -hmm. it is. It is great when you have input on that. Mm -hmm. I I have to say, like the uh, there was one quote while I was reading. I didn't put it into the story because it was it would have been putting words into Penny's mouth. Uh, But while I was reading, uh. 
the novel while I was reading Oliver Twist, this made me think of Penny uh, because at that time I had gotten to know your character more and seen her. But, you know, I find, you know, when we meet Penny, we find out like she's raised without like the proper affection of a family. And you make that clear from episode one. And we come to see how like you clearly you made her clearly long for a connection with others. And so I came across this one quote in the novel. It's towards the beginning when Twist is leaving the workhouse. And even though it was nothing like a family to him, he still like felt pulled towards it. And it it says, uh, wretched as were the little companions in misery he was leaving behind. They were the only friends he had ever known. And a sense of his loneliness in the great wide world sank into his heart for the first time. And when I read that line, I'm like, that's Penny. Like that, that is like, she has not known true unconditional love. Um, she's made a, a found family for survival. Uh, but when she finally breaks away from it, there is that loneliness there that we see just like seeping out of her. That's great. Mm, that's really sweet. What? what a good Thanks. sentence, right? It's such a good sentence. Yeah. I love them. <laughs> uh, a question for all of us. Uh, what are some of your favorite Penelope moments in the show so far? Oh, oh goodness. Hmm. I'll cut That's out. A very I'll nice cut question, out first pause. of all. That's <laughs> yeah, very nice yeah. of you to ask this There's been question, a lot of moments, yeah. I, I mean, mean, honestly, I, you listed yeah. one of my proudest moments, which is the stinger I did at the end of the uh, Scrooge moment. That is truly one of my proudest moments. I felt cleverer than I've ever felt in my life. Um, <laughs> and so I was really glad that you liked it. It was good. Um, it was one of my favorite moments. Yeah. You're I, very I, good at improv for that. You, you are you really good at improv. Good for moments mm-hmm. like that of having oh, something thanks, to guys. say. Yeah, I, I think I, I think one of the one of the best like more interesting moments just in the show, I think, is when she is kind of breaking down in the graveyard and we're next to her kind of like pelting her with questions, trying to figure out what's going on. And I think she's just huddled down on the ground. And the way you described it, Kate, it sounded like her body was just like kind of morphing, you know, constantly mm-hmm. shifting, ever shifting through like just not landing on anything and her body kept like just just kept kind of morphing, and I thought that was a really cool visual of just this person's inner anguish kind of outwardly uh, exemplified. I guess uh, shown is just like her brain is racing, her mind is racing, and then her actual literal body is racing and shifting through these patterns as as fast as her as fast as her mind is racing. I thought it was a really cool moment in the show. Hmm. My favorite wa- my favorite moment to role play with Penny was uh, during the Robin Hood mini arc on the island and where I was Robin and it was kind of during when we were explaining how she was leveling up and up in the tree just the skirting around the truth of her of Penny's like upbringing and what drove her away and yet seeing her try to open up as much as possible while keeping her guard against another potential Fagin-like leader that she, you know, she didn't know how much she could trust this person. It still was fascinating to, you know, role play with you in that moment, to improv with you and to, to see you 
walk that fine line between trust and throwing up walls. Um, so that was, I, I think you, you played that off very well. Um, but I think it was a great moment for Penny to start to soften mm. um, in a way that, that was very tangible to listeners. Any, anytime Bertram gets to do a scene with Penelope, I just really enjoy. There's a very like sibling <laughs> kind of rivalry there where it really kind of just feels like water and oil trying to kind of mix together to a certain extent. <laughs> These completely different people who just clash with everything they say. But it makes the moments where they come together, I feel like, even sweeter. The moments where they stop kind of bickering with each other and can embrace one another. I think it makes those moments really sweet. Like that, that, at the end of the fight, I think when you were just, when Fagin's dead and you talk about how like that was really hard and you just like sit down and kind of let that moment happen. We all get to kind of like quietly kind of like hold each other with that under that monstrous blanket that was Bertram's <laughs> handkerchief when he was, when he grew to like a giant size. Uh, it makes those moments, I think, really sweet. I, I appreciate how we've, we've tried to find a balance of being certainly goofy and crass at times, but then also not being afraid to be sentimental and reverent at times. Yeah, Penelope is just a fun character to improv with. You're fun, Kimmy, mm-hmm. to improv uh-huh. with. Thank you, guys. That's really sweet. I appreciate the way you guys pushed me, particularly because Penny, Penny gets really locked down, A, because that's the character, but because B... Being new to the kind of like way of storytelling through D&D, I get really I get really stuck in being like waiting for the perfect moment to reveal something. Mm-hmm. And I'm realizing it's like it's like playing apples to apples. Never just hold on to that good card. Use it the moment you can. Yeah. Um, and that's how I feel like it is. And so I'm, you guys have been pushing me better about just like letting the character have moments and not just holding on to things regularly, which has been fun to learn to let go. Um, I really enjoy the moments where Penny and me meld a little bit and not like in like an I'm an artist and I connect with my character, but where I lose a little bit of track when I'm like playing of what is character and what is me like the mm-hmm. the moment with the dogs a couple episodes ago during mm-hmm. the fight like, when you where Penny us. refuses. That was just as much me as it was Penny. I stand by the choice for the character, <laughs> but that was also a very me move to be like, I'm no longer playing. And I'm taking my ball and going home. Yeah. I ch- <laughs> everyone should feel bad for my husband. But yeah, no, it's um, I, moments like that are very fun, though, later to be like, oh, I got into that. All right. <laughs> I will say outside the game, I think I felt my surf, my, myself uh blending with Bertram when you uh said goodbye to um oh shit Pip uh to Pip I was really I found myself like really sad by that and I don't I couldn't I, I think as an audience member it was just fun having Pip as a character for that dynamic and who knows maybe we'll see him down the line again pop up somewhere I I know that I personally hope that we do um because I felt like again like with Bertram with him for whatever reason, Bertram just like hated Pip, uh, but not like in a mean way, like he was ever going to like do him harm. But I think he just liked to like Bertram uh, loved playing off of Pip and what Pip represented as in like this kind of like what he thought was like just like a filthy rat, um, even though that's not what Pip was. So I remember like that for our last episode we played. I was like, oh no, like, it was a really sweet moment when you said goodbye to Pip, especially giving him to Twist. I thought it was really sweet and kind of a, passing the baton kind of moment but as an as an audience member watching that moment i was like no pip i like pip i want pip to be back so <laughs> we'll see we'll see what happens with that but i thought it was a cool i thought it was a cool character decision you made to do that 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, that uh, it, it's really sweet. It, it was meaningful to do. But honestly, part of it was just really like this would make sense. And this frees up Penny to find a hedgehog at some point, which is what I realized I should have done from the beginning because it's all I want is a hedgehog. So um, it's way more strategic than sweet. You I'm could afraid. have both. I, that I was would an option? Say, <laughs> <laughs> I would say, though, I, I'm very tempted to do a beer fest and have like... The uh, Pip's gone, but this is this is Kip, his yeah. <laughs> his, twin his twin brother, his twin brother yeah. and he already knows all your names, so you don't even need to know. It's like he's been here the entire time. <laughs> now he, I'm, I'm gonna make sure I'm gonna as as a producer, I'm gonna make sure Pip comes back at some point. He'll he'll rear. You were you were rocked by that. You did say that afterwards. You like I can't. He's let a go. character I love to like hate. You know, it's hard. Like I felt like I lost like I'm like Lex Luthor who kind of lost his like Superman or something like that. It you lost your to, foil. Like, Pip was I your lost foil. My foil. Yeah, Pip was my foil for I sure. I don't know what that says about you. Or, or I mean, I was thinking about the very first episode. Pip. I think I was telling Kate. I was like, man, Pip has been like the fourth character who's been there since episode one, and mm-hmm. Bertram has hated him from episode one, where I tried to <laughs> smash him on a table. Because I thought it was just a filthy rat who was loose. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. no, now this it's character's so, gone. This is so funny. Well, you thought about Pitt potentially more than I did. <laughs> I did. I did. I mean, if you probably listen to the episodes, I bring Pip up all the time, just in a kind oh, of a, yeah. in a, but in a mean way. I'm like oh, no, the, I hear you kid, say all that. I'm like the kid who pulls like the pigtails and you think you hate him. It's really because <laughs> like, you love him so much. <laughs> Do we need That's to precious. get you your own Pip? Yeah, I'll get Pip back somehow. I don't know. I'll talk to Kate. I'll get Pip back on this show somehow. All right, two more questions. I'll I'll try and rifle through these. Um, what were some of the biggest challenges of playing through the Oliver Twist arc, which was basically you know Penelope's arc, where you're front and center the entire time? Worth saying. I'm so excited to not. Everyone else gets an arc now. I get a break. I get to just make quips in the background, and I'm very excited. Um, yeah, you no, were. No, this front was very fun. Time. This was very fun, but I would literally we'd we I'd be like walking upstairs to like do this record, and I'd be like, "All right, you gotta you gotta give it everything. You gotta do this arc the best you can." <laughs> so it was it was definitely challenging, particularly the emotional scenes. I'm not an actor. I'm very comfortable with the fact that I'm not an actor, and so wanting to do right by the character without having an over expectation of myself, I think, was a balance for me to try to strike, um, and do uh, and be. And give everything I could for you guys because you guys were putting so much work into this and doing a really good job. Um, Finding the balance, like I said before, between when to release information and when to hold it back is always really difficult for me in these stories because I had so much. I had so much background information on Penny and I didn't want to just drop it episode three. Um, Yeah, it was emotional. It's hard to pick the moment. It's hard to pick the moments and not just exposition dump like uh, so much in one moment but also do it like in an interesting way it's hard to yeah pick those i'm sure that was really hard and i'm sure it's hard to find a balance between like what does penelope know in this world that like the dm knows but like me kimmy doesn't know i'm sure that's really hard too in this world Mm -hmm. that your character should know but you don't yeah yeah I think it was also challenging. The character had gone through a lot of stuff that I have absolutely no basis in experience in. Fortunately, I've ha- I had a very lucky childhood with a very loving family. And so I think trying to pull and try to understand how she would respond to people it was hard. It was just to try to figure out what was the best way. And I definitely probably missed a lot. I didn't always do it very well, but I'm always trying. I was always trying to think of like, how would she feel about these people or this moment with this like just constant background of trauma or pain, whatever you would call it. 
Um, I was actually talking about moments I was proudest of. I was proudest of how I was responding in the graveyard to Bertram's questions because Mm -hmm. this is, it's an experience I don't have. And I felt really good about those walking away of like the responses of why Penny, what, when she was explaining her motivations, I felt really good about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You want to be gentle, like hold those things with care. Cause like you said, you haven't gone through those things and you're talking about a character who's experienced extreme trauma and abuse Mm-hmm. And not certainly not being flippant with that. Like I appreciate how you how you held that very seriously. It wasn't it wasn't like a joke to you. To just like you know obviously, um, I think I would have respected. I would have uh, respected the character less had it been like oh whatever. I, I I appreciated how you tried to show how your character just carried that trauma from, from like episode one and the way you didn't let people don't let people in and how you didn't trust leadership and how you didn't want to be around people. It it makes me excited to go back and listen to those episodes to see how you played out what you Kimmy knew about your character was carrying and the rest of us didn't know and how you, and how you handled that. I thought you did it really Mm -hmm. well. I thought you, you handled it really gracefully. Thank you. I appreciate it. She thought she was a murderer the whole time. So, you know, maybe you'll hear bits and pieces of that. <laughs> it was That's fun true. to gift you with that. <laughs> Lo and mm-hmm. behold, you are not. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that coming. So that was really fun. I really thought I'm like, this is her burden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that we were, that Kate was able to like maybe kind of lift that from you <laughs> because mm-hmm. it sucked to be like, oh man, you just, you think that you did this terrible thing. And I mean, either way could have been played interestingly, but I'm happy that Penelope's getting kind of a, a happy ending, I guess, out of what was a really terrible situation. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess a happy ending for now, which leads me to my last question. Oh. And don't go into what you don't want to share for spoilies or something you're sitting on and what you want to do for, for the future. But I'm, uh, my question is, with Fagin dead and a lot of her past demons like exercised, where do you think Penelope goes from here moving forward like where do you see her going hmm, more so emotionally nice I guess than physically uh to uh to West Egg um no <laughs> I um emotionally I think it is still Penny I think the next step is for uh, a person of a for Penny to start trusting and loving a person in authority I think to realize that not all institutions are bad or out together mm. Um, I mean, that's the core thing for humans, right? Is when an institution burns you, you lose all faith in in, in institutions in general. And right. institutions are really important as much as they are really flawed. So I imagine that's the big step for Penny is going to be learning. I, I mean, I think her distrust of authority is healthy and should be used sparingly. But I also think it'd be important for her to learn to follow someone's leadership um, and to trust them with that responsibility and not feel like she has to be in charge. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we can see that that is coming. I think just it's been Kate's laid that path really beautifully. So that's what I expect. Um, more flirting with Crusoe, too. It's going to be fun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Where's that going to uh, go? I see a lot of flirtation in your future. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> can you can you tell us? I'm kind of confused uh, and not in a bad way. I'm just curious. Um, wh- what? is going to become of her, like her identity, I guess, to a certain extent, like, is she going to continue looking like Penelope LaRoche Vanderhoof? Yeah. Is she going to be zero as like a pale changeling character? Uh, and again, if you you don't know, or if you you don't want to share, but 
I'm kind of curious where we left it off. Like, man, who who is she going to look like? Honestly, I always saw her as a bit of a Tonks from Harry Potter, where her identity is not really tied into how she looks. Like, Tonks was always adjusting her nose, her ears, her hair. Oh, she had uh-huh, a general uh-huh. look, but like she was always just sort of like changing it because that's not mm-hmm. how Tonks viewed herself. Tonks was it was a was an individual, not an appearance, and so. That has always been my leaning for her, but the truth is, I am something I'm still thinking about, and I'm, I will be deciding very soon because we are yeah. uh, recording more episodes soon. But it is something I am thinking about of what makes the most sense for her. Because part of me thinks, like, I'll tell you the options, and then we'll see what I choose. But part of me thinks that she experienced more love in her experience looking like Penny than she ever had, and I think she, she still wants to be called Penny because why would you change zero was never a nice name to have so i think she'll still go by mm-hmm. penny because she doesn't know her real name oh, um yeah. but so she might still want to look like penny because that's the only way she's ever received like love and affection is in that form but i could also see her wanting to go back to her original form i could see it going a couple ways so i'm yeah. chewing on it it could be a continued like journey of how she deals with trauma and yeah. her past abuses. Yeah, to it doesn't have to be figured to out right on. away. Yeah, it could be something exactly. where she decides that she doesn't want to be anything and she wants to be like ever shifting. Or maybe at the end of our entire show, she kind of lands on this new kind of persona or whatever or new identity. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, it'd, it'd be fun to see how you play that in the future moving forward mm-hmm. as you're flirting your way with Crusoe. <laughs> hey, that helps with flirtation. Then you can just be like, I look this way with this person and this way with that person. And they don't know any better. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we can wrap there. I think it's a good place to wrap. Uh, Caitlin, thank you so much for bringing all of this wealth of information and knowledge to us. And Kimmy, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Woohoo! Uh, Thanks for having arc, me. It was so great having you and getting insight into your character and background and creation and everything else. Uh, you're welcome back anytime you want to be here. Yes, fun please join to us. To anytime I just want to talk about books. Anytime. Exactly. <laughs> well, there'll be plenty more time for that in the future. We'll be talking books. You can guarantee that. So as I leave you, thank you so much out there for listening. As a call to action, as always, we always say, please rate and review us. Uh, wherever you're listening to us on Apple, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us, take a second to leave a comment, whatever you want. Yes, it really just yes, helps yes, kind yes. of push us out so more people can see us. Also, share us with your D&D friends. That's really the best way to do it. If you like D&D and you like our show and you have friends who like D&D and D&D podcasts, please share it. If they like D&D podcasts or literature podcasts or comedy yeah. podcasts, mm-hmm. please just share it with them because they'll trust you more than they'll trust us. That oh gosh, if you have if you have a literary nerd in your friend group, maybe that to you too. Um, but that loves particularly any of the works that we have covered, you know, they're all listed. Uh every arc is listed by the title of the novel. So if you see one, it's like, hey, I know my friend is a Frankenstein freak. Boom. Get him in there. And that totally. could be a great thing for them to enjoy. Yep, absolutely. And lastly, you can follow us if you want to on on Twitter and on Instagram, we're at Oh Mam Mam Show. You can also email us uh, questions or anything else, and we usually include uh, the questions and answers here on the book reports. So if you send us a question, we'll try and include it. Uh, you can reach us at uh, Oh Mam Mam Show at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Again, it's Oh Mam Mam Show at gmail.com. And we'd love to just talk to you. We always love when people reach out to us and ask us questions or just, or just want to say, hey, we really appreciate it. So if you have something you want to say, please reach out to us. Mm-hmm. So uh, thank you again so much for listening. 
And Caitlin, where where are we going next? What's our next book we're going into? We're going back to the island. So that means we're going to be on a short stint with Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. Perfect. Then we will see you all in Robinson Crusoe. Woo-hoo. Bye-bye. <laughs>